The stars are veiled. Something stirs in the east. A sleepless malice. The eye of the enemy is moving. My brother, my captain, my podcast is here. Run, Shared Effects. Show us the meaning of haste. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. And today's episode is Hail the Victorious Dead, our third episode on The Return of the King from 2003. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all memory and knowledge, these films have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit film. No discussion topic today, friends. We got a lot of ground to cover, so let me show you the meaning of haste. The boys are back in town, quite literally, as Theoden, Aragorn, and co. arrive back at Edoras to rejoin Eowyn and the rest of Rohan. They pour one out to those that fell at Helm's Deep, Aragorn taking an extra pensive second beforehand, thinking, if I take one more sip, it'll be the drunkest I've ever been. (laughs) It doesn't help that Eowyn brings him a Rohan car bomb, which he drinks before silently drifting away. Uh, a car bomb as a drink, just to be clear there. Her uncle, the king, sidles up next to her to be like, damn girl, you are down bad, but at least you're aiming high. Drunkest I've ever been, for Mary and Pippin, however, is a regular... Shit. <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit that one out. Okay, 201. Sorry. Drunkest I've ever been for Mary and Pippin, however, is a regularly rising bar. Already they're dancing on tables and spilling drinks. Gosh, to be 25 again, partying in the Viagra Triangle. <laughs> Honestly, though, support us on patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, and Emily and I will do a TikTok of us dancing to the Green Dragon song next time we see each oh, other. Oh, yeah. Amidst the revelry, Gandalf and Aragorn have a most somber and sober conversation. Gandalf frets over the lack of Frodo updates. Aragorn tells him to try exiting out of his despair and restarting the app. (laughs) And lo and behold, it works. We cut over to Ithilien at night, as Gollum's villainy is restated for anyone who completely forgot his whole motivation at the end of the two towers, but it's cleverly done with Gollum talking to his own reflection in a pool of water like Narcissus. Should say, my precious, my love. Smeagol losing his nerve. 
No. Not. Never. Smeagol hates nasty horses. Smeagol wants to see them. Dead. And we will. Smeagol did it once. He can do it again. Sam overhears all this and begins to throttle the old bugger. Frodo wakes up and takes Gollum's side because of Ringbearer solidarity. Sam relents for now, and Gollum flashes him the I'm gonna murder you in your sleep smile, and they'll have a very Bart Simpson, Sideshow Bob-esque relationship going forward. Back at Edoras, Legolas gets his second coolest moment of the movie, or third, depending where you rank Frodo not recognize him, recognizing him at the end of all things. <laughs> He's standing in a cloak under the night sky saying some ominous shit that I absolutely wanted to drop in here, but apparently YouTube doesn't appreciate the lyrical stylings of Orlando Bloom like I do. That's why I made it this episode's intro. When Legolas says evil is on the move, he of course refers to Pippin, who sneaks like a mouse around the Edoras hostel to find Gandalf snuggling with the Palantir in the same way that I sleep with my cat, Chini. Using a nearby pitcher... Pippin does the old Raiders of the Lost Ark switcheroonie, but as soon as Pippin begins pondering his newfound orb, intrusive Sauron thoughts take over. A dramatic game of hot potato ensues, the Palantir taking out Aragorn after he takes it away from Pippin. Finally, Gandalf has the wherewithal to throw a blanket on it before checking in on Pippin. A brief death fake-out later... Look at me. What did you see? A tree. There was a white tree in a courtyard of stone. It was dead. The city was burning. Minas Tiris. Is that what you saw? I saw. I saw him. I could hear his voice in my head. What did you tell him? Speak. He asked me my name. I didn't answer. He heard me. What did you tell him about Frodo and the ring? The next morning, Gandalf calls a war council just to announce that Pippin may be an idiot, but he is not false. In fact, he actually did his team a solid. Pippin reconnoitered the next attack, one on Minas Tirith. If the beacons are lit, the wizard advises, Rohan must be prepared to ride. Baird and box at first, but Aragorn steps up to make it all about him. <laughs> He'll go to Minas Tirith. Gandalf just dismisses this out of hand. He imagines a much grander entrance for the soon-to-be king, one that requires an altogether different route to deal with the Corsairs of Umbar. And with that, Gandalf sets off to Gondor, but not alone. Where are we going? Why did you look? Why do you always have to look? I don't know. I can't help it. You never can. I'm sorry, all right. I won't do it again. Don't you understand? enemy thinks you have the ring. He's going to be looking for you, Pip. They have to get you out of here. And you... you're coming with me. Mary? 
Come on. Barry gives Pippin the last of his munchies on account of the latter smoking the former under the table. <laughs> A teary, heart-filled goodbye as Gandalf spurs Shadowfax into action. The road to Gondor lays ahead. So we open these scenes by riding back to the Golden Hall of Meduseld, and we see the nicest group of white European-looking people yelling hail in unison that I can remember ever seeing in my life. <laughs> yeah, it does really, like, I, I, I think it, it was true when these movies were being filmed, but not in a way that it's true now, that, like, that kind of Anglo-Saxon aesthetic just, like, spells pain and suffering and horrible things to come. And, and I, like... Every day I am grateful that these guys made it in just before it really turned to shit. And I actually feel like, ironically, it's the, um, oh god, who's the guy? Uh, Robert Zemeckis did Beowulf in 2003 or 2005. Quite possibly the worst mm -hmm. movie I've ever seen in my whole life. But I feel like that's also kind of the turning point at which people are like, hmm, maybe this isn't cool. And the only people who are still committed to it being cool were just like Nazi freaks. Um, but yeah, so they are there and they are uh, pouring one out for the people who fell at Helm's Deep. So that's very nice. Um, and afterwards, after uh, Aragorn takes his really long sip, which I highlight in the recap, um, it kind of busts out into a party. Um, and there we see Eowyn offering uh, Aragorn a drink. And he she says something to him, right? Something in Elvish? Uh Oh shit! Does she? Oh I'm no, uh, Westerhall. Westerhall. She says like, um, it's it's old English. It means like, um, uh, well met, basically. Hmm. I see. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? And then Theoden also joining this little conversation. I've never had any thoughts on Eowyn and Aragorn and Theoden in my life, um, except for all of the <laughs> ones that I did have. Um, which is like, there's so much happening here. Um, there's so much happening here. So like. Okay, I have to save some of this for later. However, if you think about in the Two, Tower, Two Towers books, um, which is actually where this scene would roughly fit in in the book chronology, um, the last time we see Eowyn before, um, before she becomes Durnhelm, um, she is standing at the, the, um, she's standing at the doors of Metaseld, um, arrayed in golden armor, um, shining like the sun, um, leaning on a fucking sword, like the coolest person you've ever seen. Um, she may have had a bit of a meltdown, but like she now is incredibly stoic, um, incredibly like restrained, um, incredibly kind of, um, I'm I'm going to say cool, but I mean like temperature wise, she's like she's running cool, um, and and also she is cool as in looks fucking cool. She's like James Dean, um, 
And and I think that's important because um so much of Eowyn's story is in effect about the the um the, the sort of psychological terror of being forced to restrain um like like deep suffering. Um if Eowyn had a an instance, a moment, an outlet valve. Um, cause, cause, sorry, so I'm going to lead myself in 50 different directions here. Um, one important thing mm-hmm. about Aon um, that I think I've mentioned before, but really want to hammer home again here is the fact that like, we never see Aon around other women. Um, and I'm not saying this in terms of like, oh, Lord of the Rings fails the Bechdel test. I'm saying this because it's important um, that Aon is never around other women. Like she, she's a woman of a noble house as in the book. She like keeps reminding us. She keeps saying, I am not serving girl. I, I, I am a woman of the most noble house of my kingdom. Like I'm not nobody. Um, a woman of her stature, a lady of her stature, um, should have women around her. She she should have ladies in waiting. Um, but Eowyn is effectively the only woman we see in in the mark. Um, she is completely alone. Um, so so in that sense, she has no outlet. She has no one to relate to. Um, in a purely sort of gendered women must always understand women way. Um, we are being told by explicitly by Tolkien that Eowyn is very alone. Um, then we have the second part, which is that um, all the men in her life um, don't pay attention to, to where she's at emotionally. They don't read the signs correctly, which I'm going to come back to in a second. Um, but the the way that we see, the way that we know that Eowyn is so alone and so emotionally basically constipated is, is because she is restrained. At no point, um, except for the moments of genuine crisis, i.e. the moments at which she's about to kill herself um, or has reconciled herself to killing herself, um, do we see her display any real emotion? Um, even when she's edging around this question of of Aragorn and his relationship to her or her relationship to him, um, that's quite restrained um, until the moments at which um, it, it is becoming like so clear to her that this will not be her escape route, um, that his rejection is effectively the the kind of last stamp on her deciding to kill herself or not necessarily deciding to kill herself, but deciding that she's going to do something that will no doubt lead to her death. Um, and I think it's important to separate those two because she does actively want to kill herself later um, in the books. And, and that's slightly different to what she's doing at this moment. Um, the reason I bring all of this up is, is kind of a circuitous way to say that I don't love, um, uh, shock to everyone who listens to this, but I don't love what they're doing here with Eowyn, where she's a bit more of like a, she's not quite giggling. I want to give Miranda Otto's performance the credit there to say that she's actually like doing quite a good job at, at balancing what the script has for her um but Eowyn's quite um there's no doubt about what she's doing when she's she's talking to Aragorn and and it's not that like we have a, a sort of omniscient narrator who's saying look this is the moment at which she's falling in love with him it's it's clear on her face it's clear from how the movie is setting this up that like she is desperately trying to get Aragorn to pay attention to her and and the fact of Aragorn's knowing this is not a sign of Aragorn's sort of preternatural ability to read other people. It's just he's just paying attention to the world around him. And any moron in that situation would know that that Aragorn is like, or Eowyn rather is down bad. Um, and and that for me is like um really the kind of cornerstone of of my problem with how this this movie deals with women. Um, which is that like women who in the books are very restrained and and stoic and and their restraint and their stoicism is actually crucial to understanding why it is that they they suffer so much um these women and uh, women characters in in the, these movies are 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 kind of hysterical um or if i want to be like slightly less gendered in my terminology like 
they are very forthcoming in their emotions in a way that is um, more about playing up the kind of femininity, the girliness of it, um, I think probably as part of this like four quadrants appeal, um, than it is about like actually dealing with what their um, what their characters are, are are developed to be doing in the, in the narrative and, and what their stories are kind of pointing to about the, the world um, they inhabit. Um, so I'm going to kind of like hold the rest of it away, but like I, I, I think that kind of like Eowyn being as close to giggling girl as this movie will allow any woman to be um, is frustrating. And then compound that is compounded by, by Theoden showing up and Theoden seeing and like straight up being like, Oh, I can tell what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Um, It matters to me that you have picked well. um, And also like, I'm sorry that I wasn't good enough because that is like, that is genuinely the antithesis of Theoden in in the books. Um, And, and and the reason I can say that with such confidence and, and not even kind of try and like subvert this as, Oh, but uh, other people may have, other interpretations other people may have other interpretations but those interpretations are straight up wrong um gandalf who again like i'm never inclined to privilege as like a source of truth in these books like straight up says in return of the king and when everybody's like yo why'd that bitch try and kill herself um gandalf is straight up like guys think about it like nobody paid attention to her very obvious signs of distress like like guys you shouldn't be clapping at this i am no man thing women only do that when they're in distress (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, this is the cornerstone of Eowyn's whole fucking shtick. Like, this is why the Houses of the Healing scene matters. This is why her, like, her her kind of collision with Faramir later matters. This is why Theoden's failures as a king are magnified, because they're not just the macro-level failures as he's failing his kingdom. It's also he's failing his patriarchal duties as a man to the women around him. Like, this is what Eowyn is meant to be. And and this is what her relationship to Theoden is meant to be. And this movie basically goes, but what if it wasn't that? Like, what if we just did like a, but dad, I don't want to play football, but like with a girl. So it's like, but dad, I do want to play football. And Theoden's just like, oh, I love you, son or daughter, but like, you can't play football because that's for men and and that's it and th- that's just not the story at all that that should actually be told here you know theoden actually is like well you know aragorn's actually the one who won at helm's deep so it's not even like his like daughter is like or niece i guess is like i don't want or i do want to play football and he's just off thinking about it's like man back in high school i was so good at football. <laughs> yes it's exactly what? that <laughs> <laughs> Like he, he's he's still uh, uh, fixated on his own failures and not even thinking about the people around him. Yeah, I mean, like obviously, I have nothing of substance to really add to that. I mean, I think you opened my eyes to how Eowyn is adapted when we talked about it at length many times during the Two Towers. Um, and all of this, like this entire movie, minus like some of the cooler, you know, Rohirrim stuff, is really feels like you know almost like a high school <laughs> teen romance. Yeah. Where it's like she wants the popular guy, but he's actually kind of a jag off. Um, so it almost feels like she just settles for Faramir, yeah. especially in the theatrical edition when there isn't really anything until they just show up at the end of at Aragorn's coronation together and they're like side by side. It's like, well, they kind of coupled up, you know, you know, social cliques just gravitate towards people who kind of look like each other or whatever, <laughs> or is you know, you know, all that kind of bullshit. Like it really didn't come off as anything more than well. She shot her shot. It didn't work out. So now it's just next one up uh, kind of thing. uh, Yeah. And it's really, like you said, I I think everything that's in this is so, it's so gendered to the year like 1999. (laughs) 
Um, you know, and it, back in 1999, we only conceived of things as two genders, and they were very specific in their roles and their presentations. And we would never do um, that now. <laughs> Girl dinner. No, we would never. <laughs> now we're just cycling back to that, but with uh, much more social justice-oriented language. So, <laughs> um, Anyways, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> well, let's talk about... Uh, so we do get a really fun scene with Mary and Pippin singing and dancing. They're doing the Green uh, Dragon song, um, which I think this is the first time we're seeing it in the theatrical edition. Um, I think we get a little bit of it in the uh, Fellowship uh, Extended Edition, yep. just when they're sitting around drinking um, at the at the Green Dragon, I guess. Uh, so uh, we see them do it again, um, and that's all fine and good. We see them kicking little mugs off and spilling them onto uh, you know the Rohan people who are there cheering them on and dancing. It's all very cute. Um, it's actually kind of similar to uh, the scene in Fellowship of the Ring, the book, where Frodo first slips the ring on him because yep. isn't he like standing on a table and dancing and singing and falls off? Yep, 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 um, yep. Something like that. So, um, so that's all cute. But the real thrust of this is Gandalf and Aragorn um, who have a little chat. And I'm going to admit this scene kind of threw me at first um, because, you know, Gandalf is kind of despondent. Like, we haven't had any news of Frodo, and I wasn't aware that they had invented the telegraph in <laughs> Middle Earth. So I'm like, is it, isn't that kind of what you'd expect at this point? Like, he went east at a point where no one else in their company went east. Um, I don't like this is all based on the movie logic. Um, you know, coming back to the books, knowing that Gandalf, you know, came to on Karadaras and then rode around. Um, what's it called? You know, he went to Lothlorien, you know, checked in with Galadriel, all that stuff as Gandalf the White. Like, so maybe that makes a little more sense in that context. But the way these movies are structured, I was just like, how would anyone know anything <laughs> about what's happening with Frodo at this moment? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think this is also just another moment in which I am like the most like unthinking movie watcher of all time because like it had not occurred to me at all that that would be like that like there would be no reason for Gandalf to be asking that question. I just like I have such a habit of hearing lines in movies and being like, yes, of course, like that of that of course makes sense. Nobody would ever put anything that doesn't make sense into a movie. And now that you're saying this, I'm like, ah, <laughs> you're right. That is slightly <laughs> odd, isn't it? <laughs> it had not occurred and, and, and to me until this moment. And I don't want to, like, I'm not trying to cinema since no, this, no, this no, isn't no. a fault or knock on the movie. It just kind of, I think this wouldn't have bothered me if there isn't that scene later after the battle at Pelennor Fields where Sam and Frodo actually, you know, fight out, fight their way out of Kirith Ungol and actually make it to the plains of Gorgoroth. And then they cut back to Gandalf at Minas Tirith and is like, Frodo has passed out of my vision. Like, yeah, was what? he like, like, was his Wi-Fi disconnected for a while? And then he bought it on the airplane and then he lost it. Like, I I don't understand exactly how the Frodo tracking is happening here. Um, To me, like, at least the way I like to imagine the story, because it's my story, not J.R.R. Tolkien's or Peter Jackson's or anyone else's, is that um, letting Frodo go, whether that was Frodo's choice, like in Breaking of the Fellowship or kind of Aragorn was more involved in the movies. Like after that, it's kind of a leap of faith. Um, at that point, you're just kind of trusting Frodo to do the thing. Yeah. Um, and it's like just pure, sheer, amazingly great luck that Faramir stumbled upon Frodo and that he was able to relay something back to them at Minas Tirith. Like I actually love that scene we'll talk about later when... Gandalf saves Faramir and the people fleeing us Gilead. The way like Pippin lights up was like, you've seen Frodo. Like, I love everything about that. Like, that made sense to me. But I just didn't get what, what this Gandalf Frodo, like, what, you know, end to end 
like wireless connection is supposed to be. It just kind of threw me off. It's something I complain about. I mean, it obviously, you know, it's serving some other purposes besides just, you know, when Frodo's not on screen, all the characters should be asking, where's Frodo? <laughs> um, but it just kind of did throw me off logically. Yeah, no, and I, I also think it's fair to say that, like, I, I think your interpretation of, like, this quest as, like, once you let Frodo go, it is a leap of faith. Like, <clears throat> I think that is the correct one because, like, it, it is truly a leap of faith. And I think, like, I think you were right to point out that it's strange the way that the movie handles it because I, I think, if anything, the movie underplays how much of a leap of faith like it, it actually is and how crucial it is that they have no guarantee that this will succeed like it is the fact that they are willing to do this um to effectively tie a ring to a chicken and send the chicken running to mordor that like <laughs> it, it it serves two purposes like one it underscores just how fucked they are if this is their best choice but then it also like emphasizes how incredible all of the characters we come across not just faramir and not just like x y and z other people but like frodo and sam as well like just how incredible they are because every single second every single inch of this journey had to go exactly right for it to succeed um and if if the young captain of gondor to quote um movie gladriel like had wavered and had been a second too slow or had been a second uh, like and you know a uh, a jewel too harsh or whatever like though the whole thing could have gone to shit and the world would have ended um and by underplaying that that kind of this is a hail mary pass i i think they do kind of remove a bit of that tension that dramatic tension that surrounds the quest itself yeah and i think a lot of this is just based i really feel like uh book five of the lord of the rings the first half of it or the non-frodo half like it really does feel like where the fuck is frodo during all this yeah. <laughs> um even even though, like, yeah, you know, Faramir had ran into him and all that. Uh, but besides that point, it was just, like, kind of, like, completely off page. Yeah. Um, and that is important, though. Like, the, that that kind of, like, it, it's about, um, in, a, in, a, in a really true sense, right? Like, and, and not to get too weird about it here, but, like, um, God for Catholics is quite a quiet God in comparison to Protestant God. Like, you know, there's a joke about how, like, protestant street god like a hotline like a 1-800 number and they're always on the phone to god and expecting god to pick up whereas like catholics are kind of aware that god has like a whole bunch of like secretaries i.e the saints who are gonna pick up that call for him <laughs> um like god is quite a, a quiet figure um in in catholicism and and to have a professed faith in in god is to make that kind of hail mary pass and to trust that even in his silence he is still there right like um it's kind of hard for like us as like atheists to, to kind of conceptualize but but like there is this like sense that like in 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 trusting that that silence means that god is still there you your faith is strengthened and and for frodo to disappear effectively disappear in the way that he has um and for there to only be word of him through these other sort of prophet style figures like faramir like that that is definitely i think the core kind of message of faith in, in these books um i i, I think that's like uh, I think you're right to point that out because that is actually a very important part of the the kind of relationship of the rest of the story and the rest of the characters to Frodo. Uh, it's funny you, you say that because what I really think is kind of happening here is we're having a shift in polarity between kind of Aragorn and Gandalf, um, between the man and the wizard, um, because I would say in the first two movies and, you know, they have limited interactions with each other for, you know, various reasons. But, like, Gandalf tends to be the more self-assured one. Um, like, 
that something is on their side, like there are forces at work other than that of evil Frodo kind of thing. Whereas Aragorn is because they're trying to, you know, kind of shoehorn in this little Cambellian journey for him. He's a little more self-doubting um, and a little unsure of himself until maybe like Helm's Deep is supposed to be like his like self-actualization, perhaps, uh, at least the way these uh, films are conceived. Um, so it does feel like now in this final film, in what is theoretically Aragorn's film, um, so maybe they're gassing him up a little bit is like, he seems to be the one who's going to be the rock. Um, you're going to see this again after Pelennor Fields, that same scene I was talking about a minute ago. He's the one who's confident that his plan to draw them out at the Black Gate um, and his confidence that he can deliver a great rallying cry um, at the Black Gate. Like, he's kind of more full of himself now than he has ever been. And I don't necessarily mean that as a negative, um, but you kind of, this is how they're kind of showing that transition to kind of the more kingly and sure of himself version that the film, you know, specifically is going for. I understand that is not the book chapter. I really recommend people listen to our character episode on Aragorn because um, I think we kind of cracked the code on his book versus film adaptation. Um, but I also view this as kind of like this is, you know, the elves are passing out of Middle Earth. That's what we're going to be talking about next weekend. We're going to see what the last journey of Arwen Undomiel and talk about all those scenes. And I think there is a move in Middle Earth, as portrayed by these films, of power moving out of the realm of the spiritual, out of the realm of the Gandalfs of the world, out of the Alrons, and into the secular, into this new king who is going to be unifying the kingdoms of men. And theoretically, you know, there's going to be some kind of revolution i don't know yeah um there actually isn't in fact we actually uh but you know you know what i'm getting at yeah yeah no no i think that i think that's a great point I, because like for me that it um what's the right way of doing this um there is a like you are i would say absolutely 100 percent correct to to say that this this kind of role change um role swap between gandalf and aragorn is this meant to kind of signify this move from the kind of spiritual towards the the more temporal like i think you are absolutely 100 correct 100 correct on that um i want to like um not nuance that but like build on that though by saying that like i think it is interesting to me because it does it in the, ver the very 90s way where like in the 90s everyone thought that we were like growing more secular more enlightened we were becoming a more scientific society mm -hmm. we had cracked the internet the, the 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 we were in the new space age it was everything was going to become more scientific more objective um and we had kind we of evolved beyond the need for god um the people who kept god um were kind of silly little peasants um and and that was certainly a, a like a very specific kind of cosmopolitan liberal view of 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 the 90s and and the thing that is important about that is how wrong it actually is um, because so much of the underpinnings of, um, I would say like dominant strains of, of liberalism, um, and dominant strains of, um, even that sort of non-Christian conservatism, um, in the nineties were still tethered explicitly to, um, spirituality, um, and, and, and specifically Christian spirituality, um, almost inescapably so. Um, and so it was a whole bunch of people, basically the nineties was a whole bunch of people who called themselves atheists, but still behaved like Christians. Um, and, and that is, I think largely, um, and, and the reason that's true is because nobody was actually questioning the presuppositions of like Christian thought, um, or specifically Protestant thought, um, certainly in America, certainly in Britain. Um, um, and, and I think you have that going on in this movie a bit where like, there is absolutely meant to be this kind of passing the baton from, from the world of the like spiritual represented by Gandalf, um, and the elves, um, to the world of the, the temporal represented by Aragorn. 
And yet, in that passing of the baton, there's not really any questioning of the suppositions that led to that spiritual world. Like, nobody's like, hey, Gandalf, maybe some of the things that you did here were a little weird. Or like, hey, Elrond, um, maybe your whole fucking family was heinously weird. Um, It's just like, okay, that time is done. We're now going to run with a slightly different way. But like, all of the things, all of the foundations will remain intact. Um, And I think that becomes really clear um, the further on we get into... Um, into the movie, particularly in the scenes with Denethor, where like the the Denethor's character is essentially whittled down to a guy who just really likes power, which isn't actually the dynamic in um in the book. And so when Gandalf's like, "Well, this isn't your throne. What the fuck are you talking about?" It's not really about like the type of government or the 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 kind of um founding myth of of this pseudo state. Um, it's more actually just about like you're the wrong guy, my guy's better, um, and that I think is actually like an important distinction um, that should be made in in kind of all of the Gandalf Aragorn related plots, like here for. So it's like the elves are leaving Middle Earth, but it's still the world that they essentially built yes. that is being ruled in. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, moving away from Rohan for just a brief second, we get this scene with Gollum, Sam, and Frodo just in indescript location in Athelion. Um, There's very little scenery to chew on here. Um, I don't know. For whatever reason, I don't really like this scene. Um, I think I mentioned in our first episode on Return of the King proper that this scene specifically was one of the preview scenes um, like that they would show on like Access Hollywood, you know, before Return of the King came out. So I'd actually seen this scene quite a bit. Um, and I think it really bothered me because it's pretty much just a lesser version of Gollum's monologue at the end of the two towers, but just with the added thing of like Sam discovering it. Um, and that a lot of that is a just to restate Gollum's motivations, because that's a thing we did back then. You know, we didn't just hit the ground running with the sequel. Sometimes we had to do a little bit of catch up. <laughs> um, and then um, they had to do this because they have to have Sa- Sam and Gollum have their little tension, um, which I think mostly works, even though I don't specifically love how it's written most of the time. Um, but like, I, I, I don't really begrudge it. I don't necessarily say they needed to get rid of it wholesale. Um, but it sometimes it just does make one or two or maybe all three of them all kind of look stupid. Um, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to say about this scene. Yeah. It's reverse boys rock. Really? Um, there, there's kind of like, Hmm. Um, there, there's kind of, I think a lot of the insecurity, the adaptation insecurity, um, that really plagues this film. That's, creeping in here and i think this is really when it rears its head in a way that's quite hard to ignore um i wish that they had just been a bit more like kind of dicks out about the fact that they're just putting a lot of Gollum in because Gollum's a flex um instead of trying to make it more than that and like i say that with the confidence of someone who would never actually have to do anything like this so i can't like tell you the right <laughs> way to have executed that but i wish it had just been slightly less about like oh, we're ratcheting up this drama, we're ratcheting up this character tension, and a little more, holy shit, look at how cool Gollum looks. <laughs> yes, and he does look cool. I will give them a couple credits here. First of all, um, in the many Gollum monologues to himself, uh, most of them are in Two Towers. This is the only real one he has in Return of the King, where the two sides of his personality are talking. Um, they always find a different way to shoot them. Um, so it's never kind of the same shot, reverse shot, 
um, even though they do use shot reverse shot in all of them, but they kind of like set up this uh, like scene differently. Like the first time he's talking to himself as kind of like introducing the audience to the dual personality. Then at the end of two towers, they do the whole like one long tracking shot through all the dead trees. Um, and every time he passes behind a branch and like flips personality, that's really cool that we talked yeah. about. Um, and then here they're doing it with the puddle. I compared it to Narcissus and Echo from Greek mythology. Um, and it does do a good job of actually like showcasing Gollum's face. Um, one thing we can highlight is that in the two towers, they did not have facial motion capture ready to go. Um, that was all just animated after the fact for two towers Gollum. But now they do have facial animation um, on the Gollum character. So they're basically hitting us with it right away. Like you say, they're just basically flexing the Gollum stuff. Um, and having two close-ups on his face, one in a puddle, one not, um, is pretty good way to do it. Um, I also do like the effect of him throwing in the rock, um, and then when the kind of ripples die away, Sam shows up. Um, it doesn't look like, quote-unquote, realistic, but it's stylized in a really cool way to give focus to Sam that I really like. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think that's about that's about all the niceness I could do for these scenes. I just find the, well, whatever, I won't do too much of this, because... I know I'm in the minority everywhere in the whole world on this one, but like, I just don't really find Sam and Frodo particularly compelling in this movie until literally the end. Um, I find it. I, I wish they had gone with the book structure of being like, Hmm, where the fuck are these guys for the first hour and a half, which is what they do with Aragorn for a while. But I don't think they actually really do it on purpose. Um, I wish they'd just done that. Cause I think that would have made the kind of tension at the end um and the the bleakness at the end that much more poignant yeah that's fair um i i get a little more gassed up for the shilov and kirith ungol stuff yeah. um but uh but um i will say like this is like there are very few times where i would look at this movies and i'm like you can take this scene out like completely wholesale and lose nothing and this is one of the ones that i feel absolutely you can just remove and zero is lost yeah um like, I, I can't tell you what is gained by this. Because, I mean, we already know Sam doesn't trust Gollum. So if it just becomes Gollum, like, kind of pulling his little breadcrumb trick on, uh, what's it called, on the mountain pass, like, I would believe that without Sam knowing that Gollum might have ulterior motivations beyond his already mistrust of him, you know? Yeah. Whatever. Um, Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Uh, see, for me, it's it's the problem of the these movies being adaptations is, and, like, it's... It's not their fault necessarily, except for the fact that they decided to adapt a book. But like, there's always going to be something that it, it, it's getting compared to. And for me, it's hard in this movie in particular to look at all of the things that they cut out from the Lord of the Rings book and look at the things that got left in and think that it's really an effective use of time. Like the one I always kind of rail against is the like skulls <laughs> and it's great fully, but like the skulls, the nonstop skulls and um the paths of the dead like that is about as much time as it would take to cover i don't know most of the houses of the healing stuff um and and they made a conscious decision to do that and to do this golem stuff instead of things that i think would have hammered home in a far more interesting way the the kind of the 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 true peaks of this book um or, or these books um and yeah, it, it just means that like I, I see stuff like this where it feels like it drags a bit and I'm like, God, imagine what they could have done with this amount of time um, to get to the book and and how much more this could have maybe been improved if, if they just done that instead. 
So we cut back over to Rohan, back to Edoras. Everyone's having a little slumber party <laughs> in the Great Hall, I assume. Um, everyone except Legolas, who I guess doesn't sleep. Um, no, I think he sleeps, but he's just like kind of, I don't know, freaked out by the vibes of Middle Earth, it seems like. Because <laughs> um, he's just like got his cloak on and just like saying a bunch of ominous shit. Um, we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've all gone through our goth phase. So, uh, But of course, um, Pippin is the one who gets up. Um, you know, he sneaks around everyone. He uh, steals the Palantir just to look at it. It's, it's literally a cat. I think we made the joke that Pippin is three cats or two cats in a trench coat. <laughs> not quite tall enough to be three cats. Um, and then he just kind of looks at it. Um, and then I do kind of li- I like the scene, uh, even though it's not, I wouldn't call it one of my favorites. Um, I do like the Sauron effect, yeah. the way it kind of goes into quasi slow-mo um, with uh, like when he's holding it and writhing in pain, but his hands like are stuck to it. Um, Billy Boyd's fantastic yeah. in this movie, by the way. Um, and then uh, I guess I didn't put this in the notes, but um, this movie has a lot of kind of fake death scenes or like death fake outs. I, I don't know. It was something people used to complain a lot about movies back in what's it called? I feel like 2000. But I feel like it doesn't happen anymore because, like, every Marvel movie now has like seven death fakeouts, or and you know, Chewie like, was aboard another ship. Yep. Yeah, every everyone in Star Wars can get just stabbed through the gut, <laughs> um, and they just like it, so it's just like. But like back, I, I remember people complaining like there's at least three scenes where you think someone's dead, but they aren't. Like uh, like the other, I think Frodo getting stabbed by Shelob is the other one that other people mention. Yeah. Well, whatever, we don't have to like list them all out, um, but it is like. Because they do linger on a second of Pippin being kind of like fully, I don't know what, like rigor mortis there for a second, <laughs> like completely frozen in space. Um, like I have no problem suspending disbelief that Gandalf maybe can like do some wizard shit. Because again, the movies don't really define what he can and can't do. Um, as far as I can tell, he just has a flashlight in his staff and that's where most of his power resides. But um, so yeah, so uh, he brings kind of Pippin back and then like the meat of it is really like, Pippin, like Billy Boyd, legit like looks like, oh, I I fucked up bad, didn't I? <laughs> when he like comes to. Um, and you know, this is where Gandalf's like, oh, what what did you tell Sauron? Because he knows exactly kind of what happened there. Yeah. Um it, back in the day, we used to have like actors, movies that would cast as side characters, like some of the most incredible actors. Um, it because there was a sort of sustainability to the movie industry that didn't demand like you either um signed your soul over to Marvel or you got a second job. Um and and like I don't think we can really understate enough like how talented of an actor Billy Boyd is. Um and this is not evident just through the Lord of the Rings. It's actually evident through like a long and 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 quite impressive stage career that that he's had. Um, and he is a he is a he is a very like technically strong actor um, who is really just playing a, not quite a bit part, but almost a bit part in these movies. Um, and and you don't really get that anymore. You don't really get these like guys who walk on for five seconds of a movie doing a role that could otherwise just be a kind of caricature, play it to the tens and then fuck off and and like get maybe one other role in like um master and commander and then not really a huge amount else um but but i think we benefit here from from billy boyd having the sort of career and the sort of background that he has um and then also from the incredibly sound decision that they they make in fellowship um 
really around Moria um, to have Billy Boyd slash Pippin be the the kind of emotional, the audience's emotional anchor in a given scene. Um, and whatever face Pippin is making um, is how we as the audience should be feeling. Um, and and Billy Boyd's ability to kind of work that theatricality, that 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 kind of um, almost caricature like um, uh, emotionality in a way that feels um, not overdone or melodramatic um, makes se- sells scenes like this in a way that like um, they didn't necessarily have to be sold, but just heightens the movie for it having been for that having been true. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and when Pippin recounts like what he saw when he hauled up the Palantir, he mentions a white tree that was on fire, um, and that kind of segues seg- segues segues <laughs> uh, segues us into uh, the next morning where Gandalf is having a little war council, I like to call it, um, and this is where um, he's kind of telling everyone that uh, you know he has a built-in lie detector, and Pippin told no lies. Um, he did not betray Frodo, the ring, the quest, all that stuff. It seems to be all be uh, under wraps still. Uh, and then he starts kind of essentially giving us the table contents for the rest of the movie. <laughs> um, you know, when the beacons are lit, Theoden, that's your cue to, you know, enter stage right. Um, Aragorn, you're going to have to like go off stage for a bit, but you're going to enter stage left from here. Um, and then all this kind of stuff. Um, I guess the point that I'm sure you want to talk about is um, Theoden's kind of brief I don't know if I want to call it wavering, but maybe his, uh, like, what about ism? <laughs> um, where uh, he's like, why should we ride to Gondor when they did not come to our aid? Where was um, Gondor is... when the Westfold fell? Yes, the in sequel. the east. <laughs> in the east, they had in, in the fucking east. The west is your own border. Um, they were in Gondor. Yeah, where did <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, anything you want to share? Um uh yeah i mean oh here we go um (laughs) it's fine it's a good line i suppose and no it's not there's no i suppose about it it's a good line it's compelling um bernard hill could probably read the phone book and make it compelling um nor is it bad writing i should i should give it credit there um it it makes sense for what this character is for this film Yeah, yeah absolutely um it's just a bit like um (laughs) <laughs> what's the right way to say this um it is a bit flattening of the politics of all of it really um i think the the relationship between gondor and the mark um and and i have to be really careful here because very little of this is actually explicit a lot of this is just like reading between the lines having a uh, like uh, yeah, and none of this is explicit. You kind of have to take the little bits and pieces that were fed and, and extrapolate from there. Um, the the relationship between Gondor and the Mark hasn't soured because of anything especially malicious. It has soured because of apathy. Um, there uh, in the appendices in um in, in the sort of discussions of of the history of the stewards. Um, there is some chat about how Ecthelion, um, who is Denethor's father, um, welcomed others from from outside his his kingdom to his court and 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 took their counsel and how this is actually a good thing. And then Denethor was kind of the opposite. Um, and and I think it's important to kind of recognize as well that like there is an there is an equal and opposite pull on the side of Rohan in that like Denethor 
kind of closed himself off. Um, I would argue slightly more justifiably than 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 Theoden, and and Theoden did the same thing. Theoden also closed off, but he didn't close off because he was like, oh, these guys are cunts, and Denethor didn't close off because he was like, oh, these guys are cunts. It, it's just like they had other worse things to be dealing with. Um, for Rohan, that is the the incursion of the Dunlendings, who are a significant security threat to them. Um, and for Gondor, that is holding back all of Mordor from the rest of Middle Earth. Um, and and um, Tolkien's critique of both of these rulers and and both of their kingdoms is not that they had a sense of malice towards one another. It's that they did not realize that the burdens that they carried would be lessened by um, camaraderie um, and 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 sort of just let these things fall by the by the wayside. And 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 by contrast, Aragorn's um, ability to recognize that certain um, priorities could be pushed back slightly um, in favor of building up those alliances is his greatest strength um, as he comes to be the, the ruler of um, the renewed the reunited kingdoms. Um, and I think you get a sense here um, that there's malice behind the reason that these two kingdoms kind of fell apart in their alliance and i don't think that's quite accurate because because again i think it it applies a lot more like agency and activity to the things that um theoden um in particular is doing when actually his real problem is that he just kind of doesn't give a fuck um and 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 that's that feels important to me okay yeah no i think all that makes sense uh, I guess what maybe bothered me watching this, like as a dumb 18 year old with no book context is like, I don't like after what he saw at Helm's Deep and kind of understanding what's going on broadly, like it doesn't make sense to just sit here now. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it. Like if you've already committed to fighting, you got to go all the way yeah. else. You could have just like laid down and died in the Hornburg. Yeah. Um, um, so it's just kind of like that. And this is me kind of thinking of a more simple good versus evil. Um, it'd be like blowing up the Death Star and then not doing any other rebellion after that and just letting, you know, the Empire just rebuild or do whatever, uh, build another Death Star, I guess is what they did. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think uh, that's I think that's right, because like um, this is what Theoden is meant to have grown beyond by now. Like and I think this is also this also kind of reaches back into my problem with like the the problem with Theoden in the Two Towers movies having been that like. Saruman is literally possessing him and not just that he makes a lot of stupid decisions which makes him like malleable to Saruman's wishes um because like Theoden seeing horrible awful things happening i.e the like absolute desiccation of his kingdom and the like relentless exploitation of his niece and his nephew and his son um those are the bad things that he is meant to have seen that we are meant to be like dude how the fuck did you overlook this um, once he has that come to Jesus moment, more or less, literally, um, he then goes to Helm's Deep and fights at Helm's Deep. And that is when we're like, this is his first hurdle. He has overcome um, the the apathy that has plagued him. We um, we don't now need to worry about, about what comes ha- after. But because they delay, um, like, Theoden taking back his agency, because it's not like, it's more like, oh, poor Theoden. He, he was possessed. He had no part to play in what happened to him. Um, his realization has come to Jesus moment doesn't come until here, but it doesn't actually feel as impressive or as interesting here because, as you say, he's just fought a battle that's pretty horrifying. And you're like, right, when are you tapping in? It doesn't have quite the same dramatic impact. Yeah, I guess I'll just say this now because I don't want to put any criticism in the lighting of the beacon scene. 
Um, but it's kind of like one of those things like where if you know this is going to happen, I mean, I would have just like kind of stationed a garrison like already on the border between Gondor and Rohan, just like ready to go. Yeah. Um, like, because it kind of seems like everyone knows what's coming. And I guess that's the whole point of Pippin looking into the Palantir and seeing the burning tree. So um, I, it feels like they could have like started the marshalling at Dunharo in terms of the way the film lays out the sequence of events. Um, that it just it just feels a little goofy to me. It's like they just kind of sit on their ass now for like a week while Gandalf goes to do stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, uh, and it's it's the problem with this movie in general is that like it is simultaneously moving too slowly and too quickly. Because um, if you look at the the timeline, and actually for anybody still hanging out with us, like Rats on a Sinking Ship on Twitter, um, if you go follow the Shire Reckoning, um, they do, they live tweet um, the timeline of the Lord of the Rings um, as it happens. Um, and so like in March, you will get the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, you will get Frodo climbing Mount Doom, you will get the Eagles arriving, all of this as it's happening, according to to the book. Um, and, and it's incredible how... Um, from the start of Fellowship to more or less Helm's Deep is like 18 months. Um, and then from Helm's Deep to the battle at Moranin is like nine days. Um, it's very quick. Um, and and that quickness is is part of the point. It is like literally like, you, you know, when we were talking about Treebeard and, and the last March of the Ents, we see Treebeard at the start and he's moving quite slowly and he's he's very jaggedy in how he's moving. He's stop motion. Um, and then when we get to the last March of the Ents, these Ents are fucking booking it around. Um, that is a microcosm of what the people of Middle Earth are doing. They are coming out of their slumbers. Um, they are only just, um, only just beginning to realize what's actually happening. And that takes quite a while. But once they have to get up to turn the alarm off and they're finally out of bed, then they're like, right, we have to go. And it all happens really quickly. And, and, and that's also like a really big part of it because it, it, it means that like Sauron doesn't actually have as much time to get his shit together. He's used to them being slow and lethargic. Um, and then suddenly they're not, and and he's caught on the back foot. And then also they've done this other incredible thing, which is send the chicken to the mountain. Um, and that is also successful. And 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 that's also an important part. And the pacing of this movie kind of bottles that a bit. <sighs> yes, I agree. Okay, so I'm not crazy. I'm glad I like I like I like the scene. It's got a fun little quotes. Everyone's having a lot of fun in the scene, but it just like always just kind of threw me a little yeah. bit. Um, I know I'm saying that a lot about this movie so far. Um, <laughs> seems kind of weird. By the way, I love this movie. Yeah, right. It's great. <laughs> um, and speaking of scenes that they showed ahead of this movie as kind of like previews and access Hollywood fodder and E Tonight, um, this Marion Pippin scene that follows where uh, Gandalf says he's not going to Gondor alone, and then he looks longingly over at Pippin. They do that a lot in this movie. Uh, and then we see Mary and Pippin and Gandalf kind of working their way to the stables, Gandalf is doing what he does best, which is berate Pippin verbally. Uh, he's of all the inquisitive hobbits, Perry Green Tooth. You are the worst. It's like, I really love it. Uh, it like Ian McKellen is just so fucking good in this. Uh, and then uh, Mary and Pippin are talking and Pippin's, you know, got three brain cells. So he doesn't really understand what's going on. Once again, Mary is the canny one. I haven't said that in a long time. It feels good <laughs> to say that again. Um, he's like, don't you understand? The enemy thinks you have the ring. Um, and this actually really, really gassed me up when they showed this in the previews for this uh, movie, um, because I thought there was going to be this whole, like, I don't know, holding Pippin on a string like a fishing hook <laughs> or like as bait, like using him like, come get him, Sauron, come get him. Um, I thought there was going to be kind of like more of that. And I thought that would be really cool, mostly because I thought it would mean more material for Billy Boyd, who I had 
globbed on to in the first two movies as like my favorite character. Um, So I was really excited about that. They don't quite do that, though. I do get plenty of quality Billy Boyd goodness. So I'm not like angry about it. Um, But I really did think that because the enemy thinks you have the ring, I thought they were going to do a lot more crazy stuff with Pippin. Um, And it doesn't really ever come up. Like I thought maybe like, Gothmog or the Witch King would be like, where is the Hobbit in the city and do some crazy shit like that. Um, but no, not really. And it's fine. Uh, but that's just kind of what my expectations were having seen the scene before the movie even came out. Yeah, um, that would be... I guess they kind of are. They're not really, though. I would love to see them literally just dangle Pippin in front of Mordor and be like, if you want him, come and claim him. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Um, so inside the stables, um, we have a little, you know, joke about weed, Pippin smokes too much, which, you know, the opening in Isengard pretty much confirmed to the viewer if they did not know that already. Um, but it's a cute scene. Mary's got tears in his eyes. Pippin's confused, but scared. Um, they're both doing yeoman's work here. Very big fan of them. Gandalf's like, this shit is corny as fuck. Let's get the, (laughs) let's get, let's get out of here. Um, show us the meaning of haste is of course a very... Uh, popular phrase. I think it's been memefied quite a bit at this point. Um, And uh, they ride out. Um, uh, There's no Legolas or Gimli to run over like the last time Gandalf rode out of Edoras. Um, And from there, uh, that's it. Um, I do like the scene that follows where Mary like runs up the watchtower to watch his like best friend ride away and Aragorn chases after him. It's really sweet. You know, like Aragorn and Mary Adok don't have a lot of interaction. Um, probably the only combination that has less interaction is Frodo and Legolas. Um, <laughs> uh, for those who know where we're going with that. Um, but it is, I do like the fact that while they're kind of in the same space, they can have a moment to have these two actors, um, just like have a scene together, have a moment together. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's cute. I like it. Um, I really like all this stuff with, uh, Pippin and Gandalf's departure from, uh, Edoras. Yeah. And it looks great. I think, um. It, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. I maybe haven't been rating this as accurately as I should have um, as we talk about this, but but a lot of the sets um, in, in Rohan, um, really everywhere in this movie, uh, like as much as I hate the Gondor of this movie, like it still looks pretty good. Um, and and here, I think this is quite a simple set, um, but it's it's very dynamic. There's a lot of it, it, there's a lot of craftsmanship that went into it. It works very well. I, it, it just looks good. Like it's not a scene um, like the Sam and Gollum one where I'm a bit like, eh there's not really much to to save here like not that i don't like the scene on its own merits but i think also all the bits and pieces of it work enough to make me go yeah this is good yep um and i also love gandalf just like in the open field on the horse like as gandalf the white it always looks good as he's riding away here and uh i think uh, in two episodes from now we're going to talk about like the holy grail of those when him and pippin arrive at minas tirith and we get these great shots of them riding up and then cresting over the hill and seeing minas tirith God. Okay, I do love these movies. I swear. Yes. I swear. <laughs> yeah. As if I have not complained enough, um, I'm going to continue doing that here. Um, surprise. Um, one of the, um, really important themes that we, we occasionally dip into talking about, but maybe haven't covered as completely, um, as, um, I would not like to, um, is, um, the ongoing discourse in these books around, um, our inability as people, um, people who are bound by, like, the tyranny of time, 
um, to reconcile ourselves to the past, um, which is to say, like, our past is a thing that we cannot return back to. It is like a road where we cannot um, go back and, and and walk down it in the same way that we once did. Um, once the past is behind us, it is behind us, and, and there's really not a huge amount we can do. Um, and, and the argument of these books is chiefly that we have to allow ourselves to accept that. The road goes ever on, and, and so must we. Um, and, and the inability of um, characters, both at the individual level and also at the, the cultural or civilizational level, um, to once um, a challenge has been overcome, to then go back and, and, and reconcile that success over that, that vindication, that, that vanquishing of um, that challenge with their past selves or people from their past um, is, is, is absolutely crucial for the books. Um, so I'll, I'll talk around the point that I'm trying to make in this specific episode before first. Um, so like Numenor, um, Numenor kind of hangs in the distance of, of these movies, um, certainly hangs in the distance of the books. Um, but in, these books are in the main, um, a bunch of people who are dealing with the legacy of their ancestors. And, um, while they feel pride and joy at having overcome, um, a challenge that their ancestors couldn't overcome there is also this bitter sweetness to it in the fact that the the people who came before them will never get to to relish in that victory um so as much as Isildur figures as a somewhat villain um or a man who just made bad choices um in, in these stories there is we are not led to think of him with anger or hatred or um or really actually think of him as a villain um we're meant to see him as a tragic figure and um, and that's for a reason, because we are meant to think about him in the way that Aragorn is thinking about him, or the way that the Numenorians, the, the men of Numenorean descent in Gondor, and to a lesser extent Arnor, think about the legacy of, of Numenor, um, which is like, actually, it's quite sad that these people wouldn't be here to see the the end of the bad things. Um, and it's quite sad that these people were never able to to um, repair the the ills that um, that that they that they caused. Um, and, and so Aragorn's story and the story of Gondor and the story of the Rangers of the North, um, is, is about dealing with that. It's about reckoning with the fact that you have to, you have to keep pushing forward. Um, even though you know that there is this tragedy that is necessitated by the existence of a past, um, you get this as well with Elrond, um, not really in the movies, but in the books, like Elrond has this enormous weight, um, uh, this enormous burden of his family history, like all of the bad things really that happen in the history of of this world um, are connected to to Elrond in some way and, and weigh on him in one way or another. And so much of Elrond's character is about dealing with that and is about carrying on doing the right thing, even though there is this an incredible grief that hangs over you. Um, this is what we get to in the end of in the end of the movies, even with with Frodo in the Shire. Um, he can never really go home. Um, and there is a bittersweetness to that. It is um, it it causes Frodo grief, but there is still joy at his having had one once had having had it. Um, Sam and Frodo. Um, Sam has to reckon with the fact at the very end of these movies that that Frodo, his Frodo, is going to have to go on and is going to have to be a part of his past. And so it's about you know recognizing recognizing and honoring the moments that Fro that Sam and Frodo had together um, without letting that sort of sour what those moments were because they're in the past. Um, so uh, that's the circuitous route to the point, which is Eowyn and Theoden. Um, the relationship between Eowyn and Theoden is um, necessarily um, quite a um, 
disheartening one in the books. And and that's for a purpose. Um, Eowyn, um, like, for a whole bunch of reasons. Like, one, she's literally young. She's 24 um, in, in the course of <laughs> this story, um, which when we first started recording this podcast, I think I was younger then um, and thought, oh, man, that's <laughs> weird. And now I'm older than I'm like, oh, God, she's so fucking young. Um, but she's quite literally very young. Um, she's one of the youngest, I think, if not the youngest character we deal with yes she is um and um and 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 her youth um means that she's disconnected from a lot of the these kind of the 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 kind of themes of of history and 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 family discontent that we see um represented through like the Numenorians, through Faramir and Denethor through um Aragorn through Elrond um because she's so young she and because basically everybody died before she was really conscious she doesn't have that connection then she's also from a quote unquote young culture the the rohirrim are not actually like as a culture that tolkien would deign to recognize and um, they're not actually that old they're only like a couple hundred years old so she also doesn't have that that connection to um to, to numenor that was um except kind of tangentially but only because tolkien was doing his weird race science thing but being like see she's actually good um and that's only like 164th or whatever um so so the relationship between eowyn and, and theoden has to mirror the relationship between all of the other men um, and Numenor um, so that Eowyn has that sense of moving beyond, uh, moving painfully beyond something. Um, but it's also meant to be a, like a very clear representation of like what these men are going through emotionally as they think about Numenor. Um, so so Theoden has to be a bit of a thorn in her side. Um, he has to be someone who is actively and presently doing wrong, doing ill against her. Um, that is an inescapable part of um, what she then has to deal with at, at, at the kind of climax point, the, the catharsis moment of her story, which is not um, the the slaying of the Witch King, but in the, the Houses of the Healing when she literally has like this like um, a true catharsis moment of realizing that she can't hold on to the things that once held her down forever. She has to, she has to move beyond that. Um, there has to be this sense of tragedy, ongoing tragedy to their relationship for the rest of this to make sense, for that parallel, for that um, analogy um, between Theoden and Eowyn and Aragorn and Numenor, Faramir and Denethor, Faramir and Numenor, or Gondor and Numenor. For that to work, there has to be an ongoing sense of tragedy. And it's really important that that, that, like, that relationship is portrayed in a way that like one doesn't feel like um, there can be no sweetness in it because the bitter sweetness is the important part. Um, but also that there is no bitterness in it either. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, um, feels weak to me about the movies overall is that they often stray from, like, they either hit one or the other too hard. It's either too sweet, like they've done with Aiden, or too bitter, like they've done with Denethor. Um, and, and in reality, that actual, that, like, that, that, that kind of, um, purity point i suppose i don't know like that 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 magic moment is is actually um that bittersweet um in in between um and that's what really makes the lord of the rings what it is um and and um and i think here in particular and the comparison between the book and and the movie and the the book relationship of of eowyn and theoden and movie eowyn and theoden that's really where i think this comes out clearest and where that kind of novel theme of bittersweetness is is lost in the main 
Oh, that's really well said. I don't have anything to add, although I'm glad you're using the word bittersweet. George R. R. Martin would be very happy with you. <laughs> um, so, so, <laughs> um, so, okay, I can't segue from George R. R. Martin into the Empire, can I? Uh, yeah, you he's can. from New Jersey, you can. so um, those <laughs> fucking imperialists. Um, so, um, in the 90s, uh, those wonderful years of the 90s um, that we all know and love, um, the let's say the literati the liberal cultural elite if i could do a ben shapiro voice which i can't um they were reflecting <laughs> on um their position so the ussr fell um and that was a decision um and then <laughs> the world after the fall of the ussr um had to figure out how it related to itself um because the ussr the collapse of the ussr was to the mind of most westerners the last link to World War II. Um, and World War II, without getting too far into it, was a problem for most of the West because, like, um, yes, the Nazis were, like, fucking horrific and also the Holocaust was quite seriously the worst thing that we've ever done in human history, but there's also a lot of legacy of um, the empires, the Western empires in, in World War II and in, in the Holocaust. Like, the Nazis were taking their ideas for concentration camps from what the Americans were doing out on the frontiers and also what the Brits were doing um, in most of their empire really um and and that's a really difficult thing that was a really difficult thing for the west to reconcile itself with so they instead of being like we're going to go through this long and, and difficult process of like um self-consideration and 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 thinking about why it is that like we all sort of had a part to play and and the rise of the nazis and 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 this this the the holocaust and the start of world war ii what we're going to do instead is pretend that we had no involvement and that this was a unique evil that we like couldn't have possibly contributed to um and that was complicated um for a very long time by the presence of the ussr who kept going well hey guys uh, about world war ii um and once the ussr um got um it shit rocked by uh pizza hut mostly um then <laughs> the west could be like we're fine we don't have to think about that anymore this isn't complicated for us um and they could start doing things like going well, since this isn't complicated for us, and since we emphatically had no blame, no responsibility for the like incredible evils of the 20th century, let's actually start thinking about the ways in which our empires may have been good. Um, and so there was an attempt to kind of craft a slightly bittersweet view of the empires. Um, and this is both the American empire and the British empire. And also how the peripheral nations, and by peripheral nations, really, I just mean the Commonwealth, like the white people in the Commonwealth, and how they related to the empire. And, and you get this, like, sense from a lot of people in the 1990s in the Anglosphere that, like, oh, yeah, well, empires were bad, um, but they're in the past. Um, but also they were kind of good at points. And, like, look at all of the things that we have now, like Dole Pineapple. Um, could you imagine living without Dole <laughs> oh, Pineapple? God um and like that's really do not google united fruit no definitely <laughs> don't ever google that ever um you definitely don't want to know about what we did to hawaii for the sake of pineapple because um that might ruin a an otherwise quite nice and pleasant um understanding of of the empires um and i think it's interesting to to think about like the fact that we were doing this on a on a global scale on a national myth making scale and yet for a fucking movie character we were like that's a bridge too far <laughs> we can't do that like we can do this about like the worst crimes against humanity you could ever possibly think of but heaven forfend we do it for a couple of fictional people in a movie 
Um, and that more than anything is just like, that is where we are at culturally. It happened since the year 1996. Oof. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, what does one say to that? <laughs> um, I mean, you're right. Um, I don't disagree. Uh, fuck. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother. No, do you have anything else? No, I got nothing. <laughs> okay. All right. So then that will actually close the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. <laughs> Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to episodes and special bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASLIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be making like Sophie Turner and suing Theoden for violating the Hague Convention. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our pod... <clears throat> Jesus. Please, <laughs> oh, please like and review Jesus as well, but <laughs> please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember you. I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king, whose name is Jesus. Jesus. <laughs>